0: Well, it's a joy to be with you guys this morning. It it almost feels a little bit like uh, coming home, even though um, this is Royal York Baptist Church. Uh, Many of you are from Grace Fellowship West, uh, and so the culture is kind of the same as Grace Fellowship East, so I was there for somewhere around five years. So yeah, it's it's almost a bit of a a home sense to me, even though I've never uh, met a lot of you and never been here before. So my wife and I are glad to be here. So uh, let's take a look at Numbers chapter 32. If you want to open your Bibles there, I'll pray and then we'll jump in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the richness of your word. Pages and pages that are meant to help us behold your glory and the glory of your son. So Father, we ask that as we spend time looking into this chapter, uh, that you would open our eyes to behold your glory. Help us to see our state. Help us to see the glory of Christ and the work that he accomplished in light of these verses. And would you transform our minds and cause us to go from here with a a zeal for obeying your word and um, living in unity with one another, helping one another pursue obedience together. In Christ's name, amen. Small sins are not a big deal, or so our flesh tries to convince us. The flesh says, wasting time at work doesn't really matter, or one glance isn't that big of a deal, or perhaps even getting angry with my family. Well, everyone does that. It's quite normal. It's not really sin, or maybe the flesh keeps us from spiritual disciplines, excusing it because, well we're just so busy, or we simply don't have enough time. Our flesh wages war, and we all too easily give in to its slimy, deceitful schemes. Of course, we know that sin is actually a big deal, and that even so-called small sins are a big deal before God. But Satan would have us forget that all too quickly. So this morning as we look at Numbers 32, it's my hope that our urgency and our unity in obeying God would grow so that our flesh wouldn't deceive us so quickly. I've broken up the text into three points. uh, Verses 1 to 5, and then 6 to 27, and then 28 to the end. The first point is the reasonable request. Verses 1 to 5. But since we're jumping into the middle of a book, let's get a little bit of context. Um, we just spent, I think, around six months at our church going through the book of Numbers in our Bible class before the service. So uh, my head's there, but you guys maybe, not, aren't, or maybe aren't there. Uh, so the book begins with the census of the Israelites. That's where the title Numbers comes from. They've left Egypt... They're on their way to the promised land. In the first 12 chapters, we get various teachings on different arrangements for the camp, on sacrifices, on uh, their roles. Uh, But we also get a glimpse of Israel's heart toward God. They grumble about the situation in the wilderness. They wish they could go back to Egypt. Then in chapter 12 of Numbers, even Miriam and Aaron oppose Moses. That's his own family opposing him. So then, chapter 13 and 14 come, and it's a pivotal point in the book. The Israelites are approaching the promised land, the land that God promised to give them. But the outcome is less than desired. The Israelites come to the land, and they send in their spies. Um, many of you probably know the, the stories of that chapter, but the spies return telling the leaders of the glory of the land, showing them the huge fruit of From the land, but it's not all good news. The people in the land are just as big. And so 10 of the spies convinced the leaders that it's not a good idea to go into the land. Friends, this is ludicrous. The sovereign God promised to give them this land. But because of their little faith, they didn't believe in the word of God or the power of God. And so they said no to the promised land. God takes this rejection seriously and condemns them, the whole generation, to death in the wilderness, except those two spies. That's Joshua and Caleb. So the next 18 chapters are full of uh, the Israelites wandering about in the wilderness uh, and them grumbling against God. And then God judging them and some of them dying in different ways. Um, But then God delivers them through Moses or Others like Phineas or other uh, miraculous means. So then we get to our chapter and the Israelites are back in front of the promised land. The entire generation that first approached the land has died in the wilderness now. The next generation has its turn. They've crossed over the Jordan but they have, and they've cleared out some of the nations on their way there. Uh, but now they're on the east of the Jordan. So this is kind of like the Raptors over the last two years. We have to talk about the Raptors since they won this year. Um, But years ago, or the last couple of years, they kept getting to the playoffs. they get to the first round of the playoffs, but they couldn't get further in. They couldn't get into the land, so to speak. So what did Masai do? He got rid of that generation, brought in a new generation with Kawhi Leonard, and finally they got into the land. They won uh, the championship. So this is, that's kind of the setting. There's a, a new team of Israelites. They're, they're sitting, you know, at the first round of the playoffs. Are they going to go all the way is the question that we're faced with. Well, they trust in God's word and trust in God's power this time as they enter the land. So now that we've kind of understood the context of our chapter, let's look at the fir- first five verses. In verse 1, we learn that the tribes of Reuben and Gad have a lot of livestock. So this uh, is in in relation to the other tribes. They have more livestock than the other 10 tribes of Israel. So they see that the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead are good for livestock. So they make the reasonable conclusion. Hey, this would be a good place to settle. Knowing that they don't have the authority to make that decision on their own and just go and build their cities there, uh, they approach Moses and and Eliezer the priest, and they ask, they say, if we found favor in in your sight, Let this land be our possession. Moses, don't take us over the Jordan. So one of the reasons this request seems innocent is that this land is actually included in the promised land in Genesis 15. Uh, So in theory, they should be able to settle there. There's no reason they shouldn't be able to. But what makes their request so wrong is they ask not to go over the Jordan. By not going over the Jordan, they would abandon the rest of Israel, abandon the the leaders of Israel, and abandon the Lord. The problem with the two tribes' question is that they don't see what's at stake. Let me say it again. The problem is they don't see what's at stake. Like Eve in the Garden of Eden, she saw the fruit, saw that it was desirable, and she took and ate it. Or like Esau, when he saw his brother's stew, felt the hunger, and so sold his birthright for one simple meal. Reuben and Gad see the land, they see the livestock, and so they request to abandon their brothers. Friends, how often is this the case with us? We don't realize what's at stake when little temptations arise. In a much lighter sense, uh, this is like my wife's old dog. They Uh, named him Barney, which is an interesting name. Uh, But either way, like many other kids, Elizabeth and her brother Charles uh, would make a gingerbread house every Christmas. So the dog, seeing the gingerbread house, wanted a share in that sugary goodness. So what does he do? Well, he waits for the cover of night, and then he makes his attack. He finds the house and gets to it, no matter where it's hidden, and he mouths down. Well, dogs aren't known for their self-control. Uh, So, he eats the entire house and then obviously gets sick from all the sugar. Uh, So, the family would wake up to a missing gingerbread house, a mess to clean up, and a sick dog. So, it'd be one thing if that happened once, you know, just one Christmas that happened. But Elizabeth tells me that that happened for something like six Christmases in a row. This dog could not learn his lesson. So, Uh, You'd think year after year, he would know that eating the house leads to feeling terrible. And even though it looks good, it's going to have bad consequences. But like Eve, like Esau, and like the two tribes in this chapter, the dog doesn't realize the consequences of his actions. And so we are like that often as well. I'll just give one more illustration about that. Um, When Elizabeth and I were first married, we went to a Turkish restaurant uh, to celebrate uh, her birthday. It was a couple weeks after we got married. Uh, and so she ordered this great platter of dips with vegetables and pita and all this wonderful food uh, and enjoyed it, but then started to feel sick when she got home. Uh, it ended up leading to a week stay in the hospital where she went into septic shock and almost died because of getting salmonella into her bloodstream. So uh, it was a very extreme uh, situation for our first couple of weeks of marriage. Uh, but I don't think she would have eaten the the baba ganoush if she knew that with every bite she was going to get sicker and sicker and sicker. If she knew the consequences of that meal, she wouldn't have partook. Uh, but Matthew Henry uh, says it like this: If men did but consider as they ought, what would be the end of sin? They would be afraid of the beginnings of it. Or consider First John sixteen. John calls us not to love the world, and he gives this reason. All that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. Friends, we must be weary of our desires. We must be weary of what captures our our gaze. So even though Reuben and Gad's request is not necessarily sinful uh, there would be serious consequences if Moses granted it and that's our second point so our second point verses 6 to 27 is the colossal consequences the colossal consequences so Moses responds to the two tribes requests with quite the reaction so his reaction is so severe that some people when reading this passage think well Moses is actually the one sinning you know, he's overreacting to a simple request by the tribes. Um, I don't think that's consistent with how we interpret Scripture, though. Uh, so we're going to assume Moses is in the right and the tribes are in the wrong. Uh, but either way, it's a very serious reaction. So in verse 6, Moses rebukes the tribes, saying, Shall your brothers go to war while you sit here? And then, why would you discourage the people from going into the land that God promised them?" Moses bolsters his rebuke. By comparing these two tribes to the ten spies that we talked about earlier in Numbers 13 and 14. In verse 8 he says, Your fathers did this. They went and saw the land and discouraged the people from going into the land that God had already given them. So in verse 10 Moses highlights the consequences of their father's decision. He said that God's anger was kindled on that day. And he declared that none of their fathers would enter the land but rather they would all die in the wilderness. God punished them because they did not wholly follow him. Verse 11 states this in the negative, and then verse 12 compares them to Joshua and Caleb, who actually wholly followed God. Look with me at verse 14. Moses turns the story, and he points back directly at them, and he says, You have risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, Not only here to anger the Lord, but he says to increase the fierce anger of the Lord. Then at the close of Moses' rebuke, he tells them that if they turn away from following God, God will again abandon the people to the wilderness and another generation will die. Their request isn't really that reasonable after all. No, their request is actually evil. They selfishly asked to stay on this side of the Jordan, abandoning their brothers, their leaders, and God himself. So Moses makes the stakes clear. He draws the line in the sand and says, if you do this, you will destroy all this people. Friends, behold the great dangers of turning away from God. Behold the colossal consequences of sin. Sin is, uh, in some ways, like the butterfly effect. I'm sure you've heard of that. Um, A butterfly flaps its wings in Brazil, and it leads to a tornado in Texas. So sin's like that because a small compromise of our conscience can lead to a much bigger and serious consequence. Or, for those of you who are Disney fans, Grandmother Willow in Pocahontas uh, was right when she pointed to the ripples in the water um, basically, she throws a stone in the water and says, something starts, it has to start small, and then it gets bigger. We know when we throw a stone in the water, the ripples spread out over uh, the lake or the pond. So friends, we must take sin seriously. We must realize the consequences of our actions. And these verses, uh, the consequence, we see consequences in three different areas. Uh, so we see the effects of sin for ourselves, We see the effects of sin on others and we see the effects of sin on God. So as the passage continues, Moses tells the two tribes in verse 22 that if they don't cross the Jordan with the other ten tribes, they sin against God and their sin will find them out. Friends, we cannot escape the consequences of sin. We are no different than Reuben and Gad. All of the sins we commit are against God himself and he says they will find us out. Proverbs 15 tells us the eyes of Yahweh are in every place. The eyes of God are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. There is no escaping the gaze of our God. Every sin you have committed, every sin you will commit is before him and against him. And there are personal consequences. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, I'm, I'm so glad you're here. This is a great place to be. But let me, let me warn you, God knows you completely. His eyes are on the evil and the good. And he will judge everyone for their sins unless we repent and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. But even for believers, there's consequences for our sin. Paul warns the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 6, he says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. When we present ourselves to sin, we become slaves of sin. We must not believe the lie that we can stop whenever we want, that we're in control of our sins. That a little look, a little stealing, a little gossip, a little lie, a little indulging, a little anger, or a little bitterness, a little lust, or a little greed, or even a little selfishness is not a big deal. Friends, our sin aims to enslave us. There are serious consequences for us, Uh, When we sin, and the tribes of Reuben and Gad would be destroyed along with the rest of Israel should they not cross the Jordan here. Their sin would would have had serious consequences for their brothers too. Look with me at Moses' rebuke. Back in verse 6, he says, Shall your brothers go to war while you sit here? Then verse 7, Why discourage the heart of your brothers? And then in verse 9, Paul compares them to their fathers, saying, They discourage the heart of their brothers. Their sin would have led to all of Israel being abandoned by God. Their sins would have resulted in serious consequences for their brothers. Friends, let us also consider the effects of our sin on our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now certainly the the whole body of Christ, the whole church, won't be judged for our sin. um, But we discourage one another in similar ways from radical obedience when we see each other compromise with sin. One member's worldliness leads to others. One member's passivity passivity in fighting sin affects the whole. When we neglect to meet together, we discourage the saints that we're supposed to be meeting with. Oh, that we would consider the effects of our sin. Look with me at verse 20. Moses says, if you, if you will take up arms to go before the Lord. So sin has consequences for ourselves, for others, and finally, consequences on, on our relationship with God. So verse 20, Moses says, if you will take up arms to go before the Lord. Then verse 21, again, Moses says, before the Lord. Then 22, before the Lord. Obligation to the Lord, and again, before the Lord. Uh, then verse 23 says, you, you would have sinned against the Lord. And then 27, before the Lord. And 29, before the Lord. And verse 32, before the Lord. I think you guys get the point. Uh, Their sins, their actions, were before God himself. There's nine times in 12 verses Moses uses that phrase. So our actions are always before God. Even David in Psalm 51, he says that he sinned against God and God only. But David committed adultery. And kill the man. And yet he's saying, he's praying, I I sinned against you and you only, God. That's how much more our sins are an offense to God uh, than to those around us. But how does God respond to sin? Well, uh, there's a bit of a contrast in the situations from us uh, and understanding the gospel to the Israelites in this situation. Um, So we can't draw a straight parallel. uh, But I think it's important for us to see how God responds to their sin. Verse 10 and 13 mention how God's anger was kindled on that day uh, that their fathers rejected him 40 years earlier. then verse 14, we've already mentioned that uh, these men rose up in their father's place and are increasing the fierce anger of the Lord. Friends, we all too often forget that every sin we commit is an offense against God. A personal offense against the living God. God is just and holy. And he promises to punish every sin, that every, no sin will go unpunished. So our sins have a serious effect on our relationship to God. So as we face each day and temptations arise, we must remember the colossal consequences of sin. And we must wholly follow God. So after Moses' stern rebuke, uh, the two tribes, both the Reubenites and Gadites, respond positively. They suggest a compromise. They say, uh, we'll settle in this land, build cities, and leave our cattle and our families here. uh, And we'll go with the rest of Israel over the Jordan uh, until they get their inheritance. So Moses responds uh, with the first of two if-then statements. So if you look with me at verse 20, Moses says, if you will do this, then in verse 22, he says, then you will be free of obligation, free of obligation before God. And this will be your possession. But he also says, if you don't do this, your sin will find you out. And so the two tribes assure Moses they will follow through on their word. These verses highlight just how important it was for all of Israel to follow all of God's word. Or in other words, how important it was for the whole of the people of God to wholly follow God. Or how important it was that people, that God's people completely obey God's command. Everything hinged on the 12 tribes following God into the land. So that leads us to our third point, the united undertaking, and um, that is complete obedience, the united undertaking, verses 28 to 42. Once Reuben and Gad assure Moses that they will indeed go before the Lord over the Jordan, Moses turns his attention Uh, to the chiefs of Israel and to Eliezer and Joshua in verse 28. So we see the second set now of the positive, negative, if-then statements in these verses. In verse 29, Moses says, If they pass over the Jordan and bow before the Lord, then they shall settle in this land. Um, But then in the negative, if they don't, then they will settle with you over the Jordan. Then Reuben and Gad assure Moses and the chiefs again that they will pass over the Jordan before the Lord. And keep their possession east of the Jordan. And then the last ten verses of our chapter describes how uh, the two tribes settle in various parts of the land, and now the half tribe of Manasseh is included um, as they conquer various cities on that side of the Jordan as well. So we see throughout this chapter how it how important it is that the Israelites fully obey God together. It's of utmost importance that all the tribes go over the Jordan and conquer the promised land until each tribe receives its inheritance. So this is as important as it gets. Moses could not have been any clearer with his warnings and with his conditions. It's it's imperative that the tribes unite in following God completely. The tribes uh, must be like a great orchestra. When you go to see an, an orchestra play. Every instrument, every musician has their part, has their piece. They have to practice and prepare for the show. And then if one of them doesn't, doesn't perform right, the whole show looks bad and isn't a success. So each part needed to complete its role. And so the, the tribes of Israel are like that. Every tribe has to be faithful in obeying God and following Him fully. So they must operate like a well-oiled machine, each person doing their part so they can be successful and follow God into their land. But there's only one problem with applying this to us. It doesn't matter how well we work together. It didn't matter that the tribes of Israel went into the promised land united in their pursuit of obedience. They still failed to completely obey God and eventually they were judged and taken out of the land friends this is our biggest problem it doesn't matter how hard we try it doesn't matter how much sweat goes into our pursuit of obedience or how much we care how much care we give to our sin or our spiritual disciplines nothing we do no effort we produce will end in us living perfectly in, in perfect obedience we are broken people We're sinful by nature, and that's why we need Jesus. We're slaves to our sin, and we need to be made new. For those of you who who aren't Christians this morning, um, maybe it's your experience that you've tried to clean up your act. You've tried to live differently. You've tried uh, to be a good person, and yet you're not where you want to be. Well, may I suggest that the Bible is right in what it says that we're, we're broken and enslaved to sin and we need new hearts through Christ and through trusting in Him. And so, um, for all of us though, we, we know the pains of trying to be good and failing. So what hope do we have on our own? None of us have hope because none of us have perfectly obeyed God. But there is one Jesus came to fulfill the law like Israel never could. Matthew recounts his life for us in the early chapters of his gospel. So, like Israel, Jesus is brought out of Egypt, goes down into the waters of baptism. Israel went down into the waters of the Red Sea. And then Israel goes into the wilderness. And then in Matthew 4, Jesus goes into the wilderness. Um, But Jesus goes into the wilderness and does not sin. He does not compromise. He remains faithful to God, faithful to obey every word of God. So Jesus continues to obey God throughout his life, and then even to the point of obeying God in the face of hellish suffering. Jesus says, not my will, but yours. Resigning all that he has, all that he is to the Father, and obeying God perfectly. Friends, Jesus did what we never could, So we do have hope. But he didn't just come and fulfill the law by his perfect obedience. No, he put an end to the law by dying for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, and he rose from the grave, conquering Satan's sin and death once and for all. What a Savior we have in Christ. So now we do have hope that we can obey God. Our spiritual effort does actually matter in light of Christ's work. There's, a, there's a, a hope to grow in obedience. The whole Trinity is committed to our sanctification. The Father ordained it, the Son intercedes for it, and the Spirit dwells in us to bring it about. So as Paul writes in Philippians 2, we now work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God himself who works and wills in us. So Christ's work not only assures us that we can pursue obedience, but that we will enter the land of perfect peace and rest like Israel was supposed to. Jesus assures his disciples that he goes to prepare a, prepare a place for them and that he will come again and take them home. Friends, we ought to pursue obedience with hope, knowing that despite our sin, despite our failings, our Savior prepares a place for us that's been secured by his blood. In John 10, Jesus Jesus promises that no one is able to snatch even one of his sheep out of his hand. So Christian, take heart. Your obedience might not be great, but your Savior is. If you've been living in sin or struggling with sin recently, I urge you, repent, confess your sins, and turn it back to God. He is full of love towards you and wants you to know the joy of full obedience. If that's you this morning, uh, for any of us who have been fighting sin on our own, remember the serious consequences of sin and turn to your brothers and sisters in Christ for help. We need one another. We need to meet regularly. We need to pray for one another. We need to be open and honest with one another. Your sin is not just a personal problem between you and God. You need your brothers and sisters in Christ. So we've seen how God's anger is kindled uh, when His people turn away from following Him. But is that how He responds when we sin now? Um, Psalm 103, one of my favorite uh, Psalms, talks about how God's steadfast love is greater than the heavens are above the earth. And it talks about that God knows our frame, So friends, don't fear God's anger. He's he's dealt with his wrath in his son. And so he doesn't respond with fierce anger like he did to Israel. Um, But he wants you to come and know the joy of communion with him. Uh, John uh, 1.9 tells us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins. So go to the Father, confess your sins. Go to your brothers and sisters and confess and work with one another, pursuing full obedience. Uh, One of the the lies that my flesh tries to tempt me to believe is that uh, the world satisfies just like God or as good as God. Uh, We all, I think, get tempted to believe that in different areas or aspects of our life. Um, But we need need to remind one another, we need to... um, Be aware of the colossal consequences of believing those fleshly lies. We started this morning thinking about how the flesh deceives us to think that those small sins aren't a big deal. But we've seen in this chapter that any compromise with the word of God has serious consequences. We've seen how all of Israel has to follow all of God's commands and fight alongside one another. So we, may we find, our, find out our sin and repent before it finds us. Uh, there's a famous John Owen, John Owen quote that goes, be killing sin or it will be killing you. But uh, Numbers 32, I think, gives us another quote like that. Uh, God warns, or Moses warns that their sin would find them out. So I think we ought to remember to find our sin before it finds us. And we ought to deal with it in repenting and confessing it. So, our passage ends with the tribes united in their obedience to God. Uh, So, may that be how we go from here this morning. I want to close with just a few verses uh, from Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that we have a great Savior who died for all of our sins, the one we have committed, the sins we have committed, and the ones we will commit. Father, we rejoice that you are full of steadfast love toward those who fear you, and that you're faithful to, con- to forgive our sins as we confess. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us, help us, Father, to hate sin, to hate unrighteousness and to love righteousness and help us to turn away from any sins that have been clinging closely to us. And Father, would you help us not to lean on our own effort or our own um, wisdom as we pursue obedience, but help us to look to Christ and help us to work with one another, pursuing full obedience together. Oh Father, we rejoice that um, despite our sin, there is a place prepared for us because of Christ's Lord, we rejoice that uh, we will know perfect obedience in heaven and worship, with, worship you and worship with one another. Um, Father, would you help us to long for that day? In Jesus' name, amen.